Dan Jenkins I, we ha, has 20 years experience working in food and agriculture industry, and he serves as the regulatory strategy and quality lead for Pairwise. Prior to this, he was the managing director and chief of staff of the agricultural section of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization Trade Association in Washington, D.C., and he also led Monsanto's regulatory team in Washington, D.C., overseeing all domestic chemistry and biotech crop approvals across the FDA, EPA, and USDA. Um, at the beginning of his career, he also worked in pesticide commercial sales, as well as R&D for Dow AgroSciences. And uh, Dan has earned his Bachelor of Science in Biology from Cal, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and a Master of Science degree in Entomology and Applied Ecology. Uh, from the University of Delaware, and he has also has his Juris Doctor from Loyola Law School. So we're really excited to have you here to talk with us today. I know you've been involved with other NC State uh, departments and uh, programs, um, and today he's going to talk to us about the regulation of gene-edited produce. So welcome, Dan Jenkins. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for having me here today, and it's, um, it's really nice, and I, I particularly want to thank uh, Dr. Kuzma, who um, um, you know, initially brought this as an opportunity to me. We're really happy to be uh, neighbors and we do a lot of work with NC State, a lot of partnership there. So um, I just wanted to say thanks again for that. And um, I'll mention some of that work a little bit later in the presentation. But today I um, wanted to make sure that I talk to you a little bit about Pairwise, who we are and what we're trying to do. And yes, that does um, involve gene editing. So I thought uh, first I'd do a bit of an introduction um, spend some time giving some background on Pairwise, which some of you are probably at least somewhat familiar with and others may be really familiar with, I'm, I'm not sure, but uh, I'm gonna walk through that a little bit and then spend some time on, on regulatory, of course, and, and maybe even some other challenges. So um, very briefly about me, um, I appreciate the introduction. Um, I came to the realization I, uh, that I, I love using biology to solve problems that, that improve people's lives. I, I initially got really interested in, in a lot of this space um, as an undergraduate uh, out of concern for pesticide use. Um, and I really love where it all comes together uh, when it comes to getting a product at the long end of a research and discovery and development and getting it into the market. I really like that, that nexus. So hence regulatory and biology and these things all come together there. Um, and as already mentioned, I've got this uh, sort of odd background in, in bugs and law. So um, I do, however, would, I would, you know, want to make sure I'm spending most of my time here talking about Pairwise, but we are a mission-driven startup food company uh, based in Durham. So I think we've got just, um, we might have passed 100, I think we have passed 100 employees now, uh, about three years old. I've been with the company for two, and this is our mission. Um, and I have to say, this is um, something that our CEO is very passionate about, and it's authentic, to build a healthier world through better fruits and vegetables. And the vision is to create um, a food company uh, that uses technology to break down the barriers that keep us from eating produce. And those barriers can mean a lot of different things. There's a lot of them, um, but I'll explain what we mean by that in a moment. So... This is what we're trying to do. And I would just note at the outset here that what is different here versus um, a lot of other companies involved in this space is we're not just a seed company. Um, we are focused on being a food company. Um, so 
we've built a very strong platform. This is who we are. Uh, and, you know, using gene editing and agriculture, you can see some of our founders. And uh, Tom's there, our, our CEO. But we have um, some pretty important licenses to do the work that we're doing and some pretty important investors. And we're very happy that we just had another um, big capital raise here, our Series B that just, just went through. So uh, we're getting some pretty positive feedback on just what we're trying to do and with respect to that mission and the use of gene editing. So these are our values. Um, some of them you know, uh, uh, might be a little bit uh, different for you, I'm not sure, but we're very focused. Uh, our science is very focused on products um, and it's not easy. Um, working through transformation systems and things like this on brand new crops takes time. And um, our core value for us is being transparent. Uh, we're a very inclusive company. It's a very much part of our culture. And um, we do, we have a lot of fun. Um, there are ping pong tables and things like that uh, on site. So um, it's a wonderful place. And so far, um, you know, a lot of us have, have really found a, a great home here with Pairwise. So what, what are we trying to do and, and really lean into here? One of the things that we recognize is the way that we eat has fundamentally changed. So we see this change and see that there is an unmet consumer need that may unlock an important opportunity. So we're on the go all the time and convenience is of paramount importance in buying decisions and when going through the grocery store. Um, you know, grocery sales are very high in things like convenience stores and gas stations for a reason. Um, and what we look at here is what can we do to lean into these behaviors using gene editing to then get people to eat more fruits and vegetables um, and to go and spend more of their time in the produce aisle and the chip aisle. And that's really what we're trying to do because um, it's a serious problem and you can't get people to sort of eat more fruits and vegetables by um, um, wagging your finger at them. So these are some, some trends that I think most people are, are aware of. Um, and you can see here, so um, I was a kid in the 70s. And um, back then, uh, there was a lot less snacking and there were fewer calories consumed per day. Um, I have pointed this out to some people that are on this call right now that I've spoken to, but the one that really grabs my attention is if you go all the way to the bottom, um, that snacking uh, for some people, 10% of Americans is all they eat. Uh, they don't eat meals at all. And it's just a really um, surprising trend. And um, on the other hand, maybe it's not so surprising when you look at the variety of um, Cheez-Its or, or chips, and we all eat them, right? And um, they're convenient, they taste good, uh, and, and we like them a lot. Um, so what is it that we can do to address this? Well, the sort of theory behind Pairwise is that if we really focus on these traits that consumers clearly respond to, um, such as snackable size, being very convenient to eat. Um, this can really help drive consumption. And of course, it will also have this, this 
back up the supply chain um, benefit to farmers who grow them, right? So making things that don't have seeds, um, maybe creating a fresh sort of varieties for consumers um, can really drive demand. So a great example here is baby carrots. Uh, baby carrots are 80% of carrot sales today. Um, you know, this is uh, a very successful product that um, has increased U.S. fresh carrot consumption um, tremendously. So there's that size and that snackability that that folks just respond to. Another dimension here is what we see with with blueberries. Um, blueberries, I think this low chill trait was um, discovered maybe in the 1950s, and I think they kind of um, were able to successfully breed it into some varieties maybe in the 70s. Um, and then eventually it really entered the supply in uh, the early 2000s. So it took a while, uh, 40 or 50 years, to really get all the way there. Um, but that dimension of year-round availability also drives consumption. It's always there in the supermarket. Um, people start to become more familiar with it, they try it, and they begin to buy it consistently because they can. For something that is already snackable and um, can be put in a lunchbox easily and is uh, nutritious. So another really outstanding example is the wonderful company's Halos. Uh, citrus consumption was, was, was pretty down. Um, this product, which uh, I know we have all the time in the house. Um, they're small, again, seedless, easy to peel, very snackable, has had tremendous success. And it captured 50% of the U.S. Mandarin market in five years. And this is a stunning um, statistic, in my opinion, which is it increased total citrus consumption by 30% alone. Um, and is obviously... Uh, being very strongly responded to by by parents who are buying them for their kids as well as themselves. So a lot of success there. Oops. So, so these are the kinds of characteristics. They're not the only ones, but they're they're really the kind of characteristics we're looking at developing when looking at developing new consumer products and fresh market produce. So I, I should say that we're focused on fresh market. Um, and very much focused on North America. So, um, so we're looking at this as a very high growth, you know, obviously profitable produce area um, where we can increase convenience, provide that year-round supply. Um, agronomic traits will come as well. And we are taking a, a, a look, although it's early days, but we are serious about it, at opportunities for positive carbon impact. Um, so. One thing I want to point out here is, and I'll come back to this during regulatory discussion, is our go-to-market approach, again, is different than a company that may be using gene editing in corn or soybean or a traditional row crop. So those companies would um, take it all the way to the farm gate with growers, and that's where they stop. So our intention, because we're a startup, we're not commercial yet, but our intention is that we would partner with other companies like packers and shippers. Uh, and then we would also participate at the end with branding and that these would be our varieties of produce. 
So that means that there is a lot to consider there all the way through, not only as a business, but also from a regulatory standpoint. So one of the things to point out here uh, is that specialty crops have really missed out on the last technology revolution in agriculture. Um, corn has been uh, obviously had a lot of resources uh, thrown at it, a lot of research, and it's, it's um, resulted in some pretty massive yield improvements. Um, and I apologize, my dogs are going nuts right now if you can hear that. But um, so that has really benefited. Something like cherries, for example, um, they have not really changed at all in a century in terms of their genetics or what improvements could be brought to them, I think for kind of obvious reasons, right? Um, so reproductive cycles and the uh, ability to breed and improve trees can be pretty hard. I think there's some pretty good examples, obviously, in apples, um, but uh, there hasn't been a big change here. My guess is that the yield increases you do see there are from probably improved chemistries and maybe some agronomic practice, but, um, but the, the difference we really note in something like cherries is maybe the biggest improvement here is just that the latter has gone from wooden to aluminum. And so specialty crops are something that uh, have not benefited from a lot of advancement genetically. And we see a great opportunity to do that, which would be of great service to this area of agriculture as well as consumers. This is my one slide on CRISPR because I felt that um, that's probably not where we should spend our time today. And I'm pretty sure that most folks in the audience are pretty familiar with it. Um, but it is a, a, a natural immune defense mechanism um, in things like bacteria. Um, and the main components of how you use it are you take it and, and you use it with a guide to identify specific DNA sequences. And then you can make changes that hopefully lead to improvements, whether they're uh, biotic or abiotic to improve nutritional components, crop yield, et cetera. So I, um, obviously we are using CRISPR as the tool. And as I mentioned, we're really more focused on sort of consumer related um, benefits, uh, but hopefully this can also lead to um, improved abiotic stress and things like that as we get down the line. So looking at uh, a lot of these crops, these specialty crops in particular, um, we think that uh, we can really also improve the declining genetic diversity. So if we're just looking across these handful of specialty crops, there are a lot of varieties uh, within them that we have really narrowed down um, uh, for reasons that are important um, to either be uh, better in terms of how they do in supply chain um, and freshness and how long they can stay fresh on a, on a shelf. And so we've really narrowed down through traditional breeding and selection uh, to a more limited uh, set of uh, varieties that we actually consume. Um, so the idea here with what we're, what we can do is uh, we can reach back into that broader river of genetic diversity and bring uh, those naturally occurring uh, traits forward into um, varieties that are already pretty fit for purpose. And therefore, hopefully we can bring those fresh varieties and new um, approaches, uh, again, to the market and to the benefit of people consuming them so that they'll eat more. 
there's a, a lot of work in this space. Um, and, you know, Tomatoes have a lot of uh, interesting publications here where they've been able to do a few edits um, to optimize alleles to lead to phenotypes that can really maximize crop productivity. Um, you can take some of these unruly wild types um, and with a few edits, uh, improve their architecture and lead to higher yield, higher density. Um, you know, hopefully this may even mean that you can take um, crops that may be better locally adapted uh, in other areas of the world and that maybe are uh, better to tolerate drought or what, what have you, um, and then they become viable candidates for local um, production, uh, which has potentially some pretty good benefits. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a heck of a lot of, of potential here. And um, lots of lots of research going on that is pretty interesting in a specialty crop, even like tomatoes. So one thing that we're really focused on, like I mentioned before, is is cherries. And one of the uh, concepts here is, can we make it pitless? Um, and you could do this naturally by taking a cherry tree and breeding it with the pitless plum. Um, it would just take you a century to do it. And so um, with gene editing, we're hopeful that we can do this in maybe around five years or so. Uh, but I, I wanna point something out here and that you know, the idea is, is that you can take sort of this randomness out of breeding these two things together and just get to that same product just quicker by sort of fixing that one result. Um, but another aspect here, uh, dimension to this slide, is that if you were to propose as a startup company to um, investors, hey, we're, we're going to work on breeding cherries and we'd like to get to something that's pitless and we might be able to do it in about a century, you're probably not going to get a lot of investment, right? And so gene editing opens the door to having funding to actually facilitate bringing that kind of product to market. Um, and that's, that's a wonderful thing. And that sort of ties back to uh, how um, it can help drive the um, improvements in a lot of these uh, more orphaned crops. It's probably too strong a term, but less developed crops. So one of the places, uh, another place that we're, that we're really focused is in rubus. So blackberries and raspberries and black raspberries uh, is, is we see as a great opportunity. So a large majority of rubus species are on the far left. Uh, they're wild brambles. And we feel that we could transition them into where blackberries are today. Uh, so you could have maybe these really interesting um, new varieties that have all kinds of great benefits and flavors and things like this. Uh, maybe we can move them into where that blackberry is now. And maybe we can move blackberries into the state of production uh, that where raspberries are. And of course, vertical and indoor agriculture is a real burgeoning space. Maybe we can move these things into um, sort of phenotypes that are really well suited for that kind of um, controlled environment production context. So right now we know there's about 740 species of rubus on six continents, um, and it remains largely unexplored. Uh, however, we are doing um, a fair amount of work with um, NC State and some others. I think I've got a slide coming up on characterizing the, the genetic pet potential there. 
Um, but I do want to highlight here something called the black raspberry, which I was unfamiliar with. And I had personally never had. Um, so the black raspberry is actually uh, indigenous to the U.S. Um, it is highly nutritious. It has a really unique taste, but they are really difficult to grow and produce for a commercial product. Um, we have a partner in California, Plant Sciences, that's been working on this for 15 years. Um, they have lots of agronomic problems, um, low yield, uh, which makes the cost of producing them difficult. They're very thorny. They have poor architecture for harvesting. We think we can um, turn these around and bring this native berry to the market uh, with um, a few edits. Uh, I hope a few edits. It remains to be seen. Um, and hopefully save decades of improvement and add some, some additional benefits there. So what's leading to these kinds of developments, as I just mentioned a moment ago, is, is this unique public-private partnership. Um, it's, it's us, of course. It is, it is NC State. It's the Department of Agriculture. Uh, Arkansas, Cornell, um, our partner plant sciences out in California, Ag Canada, um, and I think that's it. I, hope, I think that slide's pretty up to date, I hope. Um, so if I left anybody out, I apologize. But so we are doing this genome-wide area study and characterizing what we find. We will be releasing a fair amount of this data to the public. Um, obviously, there will be information that we find particularly interesting uh, to, to work on that, that we may keep privately, but um, we intend to release quite a bit of this. So. Um, it's a really great example of the kind of work that we're, we're doing with, with your university as well as others and to help improve this particular specialty crop and bring hopefully some of those products and some of those attributes that consumers are looking for, such as seedless, et cetera, um, to the market in the near future. So with that, uh, I will pivot to some of the regulatory challenges. And I'm going to just check and see how I'm doing on time. Um, so. Again, uh, our go-to-market approach doesn't stop with seed at the farm gate. So for me, as the, the head of regulatory, there's a lot to think about here. And there's a tendency, particularly because you know, we are doing this with gene editing, to think about, well, what about, for example, the USDA secure rule? That's really important, and I'll talk about that. But it's only one thing. Um, there's a lot more to it. And this is a really uh, sort of old and a bit busy slide. But uh, and I'm not going to walk through every detail of it. But I just want to point out for a company like ours and others, I sort of divide this into pre-market uh, regulations to think about and post-market regulations to think about. So once we've entered the market. And in terms of the pre-market side, um, we have to be really thinking about um, permits for field trials, for specialty crops with um, partners that are not familiar with that. Um, it's one thing to get a permit to do research with folks that are used to doing it in corn and soybean and canola. It's a whole different thing to turn to somebody who grows leafy greens in the Salinas Valley and say, we want to do this under USDA permit. Um, we have to think about phytosanitary. A lot of produce is grown in Mexico or other countries and imported into the US. So you have to think about regulations for produce in terms of moving across those borders, as well as the biotech regulatory schemes in those places. Um, and of course, there's the Seed Act, which 
you have to comply with as well in terms of making that pouch of seeds. And then you get into the, the post-market regulatory where we get into other things like labeling, et cetera. So I'll, I'll talk about some more of that. So I, I will talk about the secure rule, but it's, it's just one thing and a whole list of what we need to consider from a regulatory standpoint uh, for produce. So, and, and part of this I want to mention is, um, you know, when we get into the USDA, there's a bit of a narrative there that pops up on, um, especially with the secure rule about maybe a, um, escaping regulation or not being regulated. And it's, um, it's uh, I think it's a bit of a misstatement, it's a bit misleading, um, because all food is regulated regardless. Um, there is no escaping regulation. Um, there is uh, at least a dozen federal uh, agencies implementing more than 35 statutes uh, across um, the broad spectrum. I forget how many Senate and House committees and things. There's all kinds of oversight. And it's not just federal, it's state and local as well as watchdog groups, et cetera. So there's a lot of regulation. This is part of my point. Um, there are things that are specific to gene editing, certainly, and they're really important. Um, and we need to be very mindful of that. But there's a lot of regulation here. And and of course, if something ends up in the market that ends up being some kind of risk, there's statutes and, and laws and regulations that allow agencies to reach into the market to remove something. Um, and the standards are not um, um, so high that that doesn't happen, obviously. They're, uh, for FDA, it's if there's a reasonable possibility. So I just wanted to mention that. So for pre-market regulations, um, I wanted to start here. And to, I think this is an interesting sort of thing to keep in mind as we talk about, particularly the pre-market gene editing regulations. And there's a really good um, paper that came out uh, out of Argentina. Um, and this sort of uh, points to some results that have occurred due to their approach to regulations. And they're different than what we have in the US. Um, and there's reasons for that. But what they've found is, it's because they took an approach to the regulations with the gene edited products with a consultation to determine whether or not these things are GMO or not. And for many of them, they've gone down a path of um, determination, uh, which, which concluded that they were not GMO. It's had a, kind of a democratizing effect. So when you look at um, the number of things that are starting to come through, it's risen quite quickly. And when you look at um, who's doing it, it's pretty different. So um, in the case of traditional GMOs, it's what you'd expect. It's the, um, the now Bayer's since they bought Monsanto or, or Corteva since Dow and DuPont came together or Syngenta or what have you. It's the big multinationals. Uh, by and large, when you look at what they call NBTs, new breeding techniques, um, which is really a gene editing space, you'll see that it's a fair amount of um, other groups, subject matter experts or national researchers getting involved there. And it's not just a uh, difference in who's doing it, it is in uh, the organisms they're doing it in. So you start to see things like ornamental or, uh, or sorry, specialty crops showing up. And then finally, it's not just who and the organisms that they're working, but also the traits that they're developing. So you can see that there's pretty much two green bars there under number five on the lower right ahead of the slide, where it's basically herbicide tolerance and insect resistance. You look at what's happening in NBTs, 
Um, and it's much more variable. So there's this really interesting democratizing effect that's occurring right now, which I think socially is important. Um, so it's not at least out of the gate, it's early days, right? So I don't wanna overstate this, but you see at least the beginning, a lack of um, regulations driving a concentration of who's doing what and, and for what purpose. So uh, this is some slides that I've, I've taken from um, the Trade Association bio where I used to work to talk about the secure rule. Um, I like them because they're simple. Um, and so I, I thought that what's really important when analyzing any of the regs is you have to start with the scope, what's captured. And, and um, so there's sort of this upstream analysis first on scope. And for USDA's new part 340, otherwise known as a secure rule, they define genetic engineering very broadly. And so what actually happens here is that the initial scope of the regulation captures everything. So just about anything you can do using biotechnology is immediately captured and was within scope and within the regulation is regulated. And then there's a subsequent analysis as to whether or not you are exempt. And so they did create these exemptions, which I'll talk about in a moment, which I'm sure you're familiar with, but because everything's immediately captured, um, it certainly isn't the case that a lot of things would quote, escape this regulation. They are, they are captured up front with a broad scope um, and that anything that fits within that scope that isn't otherwise exempted, and there are exemptions, um, they have to be done under permit, et cetera. So once um, we get into, you know, things are captured, then they have the exemptions. And these exemptions are, um, uh, are upfront. Uh, you can self-assess, uh, but they are pretty narrowly applied. Um, they're expanded upon in their guidance. And uh, so for the first exemption, a change resulting from a cellular repair, et cetera, um, you know, USDA has said that this is for a single change, a single edit in a diploid. Um, and that you cannot combine these exemptions. So if you wanna make a single indel in corn, you're okay. But, um, or you could do, or it's not an and, it's an or, a targeted single base pair substitution. Um, and the final one here is that, well, if it's in the, the gene pool and it um, corresponds to a known allele, so these are all things that are very strongly couched in the idea that you could achieve this through conventional breeding. And if you can create that substantial equivalence, then the principle of like products should be treated in like ways. But I, I would argue that these are, um, they're actually pretty narrow, at least upfront. And they may grow because they did uh, create, um, well, and I, I just covered this, but they did create the potential for um, adding exemptions, but if you don't qualify to walk out of that, um, what I would characterize as a smaller window to get out of the room that you're now in because of the scope, um, you can go down this other path, which isn't so much um, in terms of the question being about whether or not you could be achieved through conventional breeding. It's about whether or not you present some sort of ecological risk, a plant pest risk. So that's the regulatory status review path you could go down. And um, so these are, these are sort of the, the two paths. 
One of the reasons why I, I, I characterize the exemptions as being a little bit narrow is because most specialty crops aren't diploid. Um, and that makes it really uh, a challenge for us because the reason why specialty crops have not had as much development, or one of the reasons why, I don't want to oversimplify, is because they tend to be higher ploidy. Um, it makes it more difficult. And so for us, looking at these exemptions, we see, well, if we were still working in corn or still working in soybeans, they do provide more relief. But the guidance has said that for polyploids, auto or allo, um, that, that uh, they don't know if those can, these can be applied to them. So for specialty crops, it's like it's more of a challenge. So that may mean we'd have to go down a regulatory status review path. Um, which is um, what is really a traditional GMO path to go down. And so that's the path you would go down if you had a new transgene. And so that's less attractive, especially if you're pivoting to countries outside the U.S. that might be making produce um, to say, they may say, well, how were you treated in the U.S.? Were you treated as GMO or not? And we might have to say, well, we were treated, we had to go down the same path as a, as a GMO. Um, so that's less attractive. And so we were hopeful that if we can meet the bar of, look, we could do this through conventional breeding. And that burden is upon us to show. So, and of course, in the meantime, while you're figuring this out, everything's under permit because you're captured in the scope. So, and that has challenges that I already alluded to. So I think it's interesting that um, these, these, these exemptions came out, but there's really some important questions so when they say um, that these exemptions apply to, for example, uh, a single edit, I'm not sure what a single edit means. Um, and what exactly does it mean to be in the gene pool? That's, and I think it's actually fine from a policy standpoint to leave these things a little less defined so that there is flexibility and the ability to move forward as things progress technologically. That makes sense to me. And I already, already mentioned the polyploidy issue. So th these are, these are all questions and challenges, I think, if you're trying to do more than one edit, which almost everyone is. Um, and like I mentioned, domesticating those tomatoes, it was not done in a single edit, it takes a few. Um, and if you're gonna do something like we're trying to do, which is seedless and maybe make it available all year round, it's probably gonna be more than one edit. So um, how did industry and academics respond to this change in policy? Now, my numbers are probably a little off here because I did this a little while ago, but I think it's really telling. Um, what, you, what industry's response was to the new rule versus the old one, especially again with this narrative that the new rule is um, really provides so much more um, freedom and easier path to market, et cetera. The old process was called am I regulated or air? And for eight years, there was maybe about 80 of those. And from the time that the new rule came into play and the time where it extinguished this old process, they just about, uh, they had, had nearly 70 submitted in three months. So industry took a look at the old rule that was still available and took a look at the new rule that was coming out and said, push it all out under the old rule as fast as you can, rather than put it through the new rule. And there's lots of reasons for that. Um, I think since the time that the rule was actually announced versus finalized, that uh, the number is closer to like 90 or 80 or 90. So uh, they doubled the number of these MI regulated that went through 
in the last 12 months versus the first eight years. And so that tells you how industry thinks about the two rules versus each other and the sort of regulatory freedom to operate that they represented. So again, just keeping on the time here, um, I probably need to speed up a little bit. I, again, I just want to mention that that's not the only regulation. Again, we have to we have to comply with the Federal Seed Act, which is the truth and labeling law. We have to do all kinds of seed testing and sampling, as well as meet state requirements. A lot of states have requirements with respect to pathogens and diseases that you must test for before you can enter the market. Um, a little bit of a, a, a mention about international regulations here. Um, this is a, a global map that I think is fairly up to date. And I think what you'll see here is that it's a different story than GMO. Um, that the global regulatory picture is how I would characterize is, is trending positive. Um, that gene editing is not GMO. It's, it's not done. There's a lot still being sorted out here. Uh, Europe is in red because of the European Court of Justice decision. Um, but there's a lot of push there, and I, probably some of you have seen that the Minister of Ag in France is even calling for um, a different approach to policy that these things shouldn't be GMO. And there's a large group called the EU SAGE, I think, which has everything from the Mendel Institute and uh, lots of groups from all over Europe um, uh, hoping that there can be a different approach. Um, what's really notable here is the way Latin America is leading. And I mentioned Argentina. There is a, a letter from a couple of years ago from the WTO signed by a number of member countries. And what you see is this approach that has really spread through Latin and spreading through Central America um, on how they regard regulations and how to approach gene editing as being different than GMO. Um, and there's some other places still figuring out. Canada's is actually was expected to come out uh, from Health Canada last week, but we haven't seen it yet. And um, so we'll see what happens there. Um, so in any case, there, there is a bit of a trend here that's different. I think with GMOs, Europe went pretty restrictive and I think a lot of countries followed. I don't think we're seeing that this time around. So I wanna just do a little bit of a focus on Mexico for a second because as it's produce, as I mentioned, Mexico is so important and just a little bit of a mini case study here for blackberries. So Mexico is um, the largest producer of fresh blackberries uh, in the world. They're mainly grown in Michoacan, and we account for about 94% of their exports. They've been using a variety there called Tupi uh, for a very long time, about 20 years. Um, it is aging. It is having lots of problems with disease pressure and declining yields. Um, and they need variety to deal with pest pressures and disease pressures. And it's really hard to bring that new variety to market. Um, obviously, this would greatly benefit. Um, the growers in Mexico to have a new variety, uh, it would probably lead to reduced um, inputs and in pesticide use, but um, haven't done that study, so don't want to overstate it. But, um, but the berry production alone employs about 120,000 workers in Mexico and adds about $250 million to their economy today. Mexico's regulations, as you saw on the last slide, they're not there. Um, they're still very restrictive um, and essentially a bar to um, certainly GMO, and they haven't adapted anything from a gene editing standpoint. Um, so, uh, sorry to jump ahead there. So, so this is a place where we look at as a company, this is the challenge. Um, the regulations aren't there in Mexico. Do we need to go to other countries or other areas? 
there's really good reasons why Mexico is such a strong producer of not only blackberries, but produce. It's um, nearby, so shipping costs are good, um, but they have a great environment. They've got the infrastructure uh, and a strong agricultural economy. Um, but the regulations aren't there. So what does that mean for a company like ours? Probably increased costs, um, maybe longer times of development, and hopefully we can make that work. So a little bit here about postmark as I'm trying to push through so there's time for questions. Um, there's things like the National Bioengineered Food Disclosure Standard. Um, this is basically the GMO labeling law. Uh, I think that this is a different consideration for a small startup and specialty crop than it is for maybe like um, a, a bigger company involved in like corn and things like that. I don't think it is as much of a potential issue for those companies that may also be using gene editing because it is very likely that whatever they do in gene editing will be coupled with a transgene. And so therefore they're probably gonna be subject to it anyway. Um, in produce, uh, specialty crops, I, I'm not sure we really know how the supply chain and retailers view um, having a bioengineered or GMO label on um, a clamshell of berries. And so that, that could be a real challenge for us. Of course, there's lots of other regulatory considerations here, the Food Safety Modernization Act, the Produce Act, uh, labeling generally, lots of regulations there, and of, co of course, consumer acceptance. So um, this is just from a seminar I attended uh, with USDA talking about the National Bioengineered um, Food Disclosure Act. The definition's a little bit different than what you see in another USDA regulation, the secure rule, in terms of what is or what may be considered um, something that could have been done through conventional breeding. So it's interesting, you have USDA pre-market with a set of regulations that speak to um, what could be achieved through conventional breeding. And then you've got USDA with another area of law that is also speaking to whether or not something could be achieved through conventional breeding, but the language is a little different. And how do those work together, right? So this is also a bit of a challenge and, and trying to understand how this is gonna, gonna, gonna go. Um, so in this, in this act, um, it, USDA did not define either of the terms found in nature or conventional breeding. Um, but what they said was, is that uh, if it is found in nature or is a product of conventional breeding, so it's got that or, and includes this found in nature language, um, then uh, in theory, and it's a little bit more complicated than that, then you would not have to be labeled under this act. Um, so we'll see, it's a new, um, it's a new law, and um, we're trying to figure out what this means for us. So, and I think it is more of, a, more of an issue for using gene editing and produce than it might be for commodity crops and soybeans and such. So <clears throat> I think I'm getting towards the end here. So consumer acceptance, obviously really, really big. I said transparency is a, is a core value for us. But I just want to point out that there's a, that, that technology is, is only part of the equation here. Um, and I know I'm here today speaking about uh, gene editing, but again, it's only one element. Um, and what we're seeing is that the younger generations are, maybe there's a corner being turned here, um, are more accepting of technology. So um, a little bit of uh, data here, 77% of Gen Z adults 
are likely to try food grown with technology. Um, but I think that truly for us to be successful, we have to have authentic benefits and appeal. Um, and so we have to be mission forward and that has to be real. And, and, and it is for us. And we have to have attributes, great tasting and nutritious, but also who we are as a company matters and that's to be perceived as truly beneficial. Um, and we will be transparent about our use of gene editing. Uh, we're proud of it. Um, we think it's important. Um, and so for us having that, you know, on a, on a website or what have you, we're still working through exactly what that looks like because we haven't launched a product yet. So, um, but it is, a, it is important to us and we recognize that. So this is just a little bit of um, data that we have. Uh, when asked this question of consumers, I believe that gene editing has the potential to, and this is after they got a little bit of background at our company, um, there's this cumulative net positive result um, that people are perceiving that this thing, this technology and its use and what this company is trying to do um, um, could be pretty good. So the statements there are, we're not choices. It's what folks just said organically in this, in this discussion. Um, and so that was encouraging. Um, there are some, obviously there are some concerns and those are valid too. Um, and then some neutral, right? But overall, uh, net positive in terms of perception about the technology's use in produce and, and, and the kinds of things that, that Pairwise is trying to do. I think this is my last slide or close to it. So <clears throat> we face a lot of challenges, um, particularly since we are focused along the entire supply chain. This ranges from regulations and seed the biotech ones, obviously, um, things like phytosanitary, I mentioned, food safety, uh, these all come into it. There's different layers, what you need to do at a state level, what you need to do at a federal level, and internationally, depending on the markets you are um, interacting with. Um, there's always this tension between regulations and technology as technology advances faster than regulations. Um, and so naturally there are questions and things that to be figured out with um, real world examples as they enter the market and those things tend to drive clarity and involvement of, of these policies. Um, and there's some interesting new agronomic sort of um, markets like indoor that, um, that may bring different sort of considerations. Uh, consumer acceptance is a real issue and we're serious about it. And we actually feel pretty confident that with the kinds of products we're bringing that, that, that we can um, um, be successful. And finally, just a couple comments at the end here. We have to do all this stuff uh, when we're really resource constrained. We're small, we um, are young, we do not have a revenue stream yet. And, um, and there are real uh, investor expectations. They, when they give you a dollar, they expect five back and they expect it within a, a predefined period of time. Um, so, the more time and work and all these things they add to cost and complication and timelines, um, you know, and not to say um, the least of which is the consideration in terms of, you know, your IP and how long you have that. Um, to be able to be successful, we've got to jump over all these hurdles and we got to do it quickly and uh, with, a, with a, a pretty nimble but pretty talented group. Um, and so that's what we're trying to achieve. And, but these, a lot of these regulations and things um, obviously 
um, they're cumulative. They add up, and we've got to work our way through those successfully just to just to get to that finish line. So, <clears throat> with that, I would say thank you. Um, okay, probably went a little long. I apologize, but um, so again, this is our mission and our vision, and I thank you very much for your time and the opportunity to speak with you today. Thank you, Dan Jenkins. Uh, thank you for coming to talk to us about Pairwise and all the different uh, hurdles that your startup company has to go through. We have about 10 minutes for questions. And so I see that people have already started to leave comments down here. I'm gonna read the first person's comment and then I'll take some of those hands that are raised as well. So we have from uh, Jabin Ahmad who asks, with different regulatory frameworks and definitions of genetically engineered and or genetically modified foods globally, do you find your crop development approaches differing or being altered in pairwise to meet standards or avoid regulatory hurdles? Mm-hmm. And you can see yeah. these questions in the comments too, if that's Yeah, easier. yeah, yeah, thank you. And I, um, that's a really good question. So uh, for now, well, so the answer will be that yes, we will, um, as to the extent that we're doing it now, um, somewhat. And the reason why is because I think we have an advantage in being focused on fresh market and North America to begin with. Um, so in terms of design and edits and approaches, and is it a diploid or not, those things all kind of are going into consideration. So we're already experiencing a little bit of narrowing of the potential and what we can do. Um, but I think that it is less narrowed than others who certainly face maybe European regulations and things like that. Um, so, and um, as I mentioned, given some of the constraints of Mexico, we have to look at other countries as well. So it's certainly in our thinking. I don't think we're as impacted as maybe another company might be given our play. Thank you. I'm going to ask a very quick question from Anna Stepanova, and then I'll call on Eli Hornstein and Raul Medina. Uh, Anna asks, when should we expect the first pairwise bioengineered fruits and veg- vegetables on the market? Oh, that's, so thanks. That's a nice question to ask. So, um, so we expect to launch our first product, which would be um, a really nutritious leafy green in 2022. Uh, we've been doing work in uh, mustard greens to remove the pungency. And so un- you have this underlying, really nutritious leafy green. And um, one of the great things about the mustard family is it has massive diversity in terms of its shape and size and color. So you have ones that look like romaine, but could have all this great nutrition or um, you know look like uh, lots of other things. So that's where we're headed um, as our first product launch in 22. Great, thank you. Um, Eli Hornstein, I'm gonna unmute you. Wanna ask your question? Hi, thank you. Um, The last thing you said sort of sparked an interest. So uh, who are your investors and and what what were some of the specific expectations they had for you to uh, jump in on this? Yeah, I I had it in one of my earlier slides. So uh, Bayer itself is an investor. Um, There's uh, Deerfield, which is, um, I think we're their first ag investment. They have typically invested in pharma, um, as well as uh, like Pontifax. Um, and I'm probably missing one there. So those are our investors. Now, in terms of their model and their expectations of us, uh, they actually like the regulatory guy doesn't get in a lot of those conversations. So I'm happy about that. So, but I, but I'll just tell you that obviously, um, if you were investing your money 
you'd want to know that there is a reasonable path to market for product concepts that you perceive as valuable that can be successful in an amount of time. And you've got to get money back for the people that have given you their money. So um, I can't tell you the terms and the expectations, but um, the, it is a, it is, um, it is a real um, bar that you got to have to hit. And it's, and, and it's not something you do easily. You have to really work hard to get there. Thank you, Raul Medina. You had your hand up. You're on mute, Raul. Which is like the saying of 2020. Uh, oh, there I am. Okay, yeah. So yeah, thank you for your talk. That was great. I I I have a question about um, the the public perception of the technology, and you 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 said in your talk more than once that. You know that's that's a concern for a small. I'm thinking a small startup, for example, because it's true that these new technologies are democratizing the field, right? But one of the things I, I wanted to ask you, if you know, from the Perwise perspective, or perhaps other small startups that you know, how com how common does the public perception issue shows up when you are trying to attract venture capitalists, for example, to 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 start selling your idea to them? Like, do they ask about? Because regulation, even if you have regulatory approval, well, if you don't have a market, enough market share, you know, like a small companies won't be able to make it in the market. So I wonder if if these small companies, you, you mentioned they are small, in, including provides you, you, you refer to it as a small, are the marketing departments in these small companies like Pairwise or otherwise actively working on, you know, plans to convince venture capitalists, look, we're working on this thing to marketing the product and change public perception in these niche markets uh, or even internationally, can you convince uh, investors that you will address the issue of public perception in the face of potential active, um, you know, uh, activist work against your product when you go out into the market? Yeah, it's a good question. So by the way, I'll tell you our marketing department is one person um, and uh, she also handles communications. And a lot of other stuff. So, um, yeah, that question comes up all along the line, right? So it comes up from investors. It comes up with from farmers. It comes up from potential partners in packing and shipping. It comes up from retail. It comes up all along the line, right? So, um, and you know, I, I, not to be um, Flippant, but I would say that it's not necessarily us that does the convincing, it's the products that we're putting forth. So, so um, yes, we have to address it, but if we have a proposition from a product concept standpoint that we think can really connect with consumers, then you get a positive response, right? And, um, or meeting their needs, whoever that partner in the supply chain is. So, you know, in, in berries and in many specialty crops, it is a very, very, very slow trickle of new varieties that they can get access to. They wait on a university, right? It takes a long time. Um, so, so all of those questions come up, but specifically to the consumer perception thing. I think that when we look to uh, like in companies like Impossible Foods, and what they've done, 
and there's other ones too, right? But it's an example everybody always cites. They're a GMO. Um, they are have a great mission. They have a fantastic product. Um, you know, you can just taste it, and that kind of deals with a lot of your concerns. And you don't have to win over everybody. These markets are big. There's a lot of potential. They're worth a great deal of money, and hopefully, you can create a win-win and still be successful. But you don't have to win over everybody. But we believe that it's the benefits of the products that do the convincing there. And we think that we've got that. And, and the response has been, here's a bunch of investment. So hopefully we're right. Okay, we have one minute. So I just wanted to try to squeeze in another question. We have other questions on the chat that I'd send you for follow-up. Uh, Sonia, would you like to ask your question? Uh, yes, thank you. Um, thanks, Dan. Um, I'm curious, so in terms of trying to acquire social license, um, do you think that the work that Pairwise is doing with Bayer on ROCA crops may actually um, be counterproductive towards developing social license, um, especially due to the major criticisms around consolidation in, in the agri-food systems? Yeah, it's a good question, right? So we we view the work that we're doing with with Bayer as being incredibly important to sustainability, um, and uh, there's lots of work going on uh, around the world in this field, um, and things that can be done to do more while using less, or maintain or shrink the footprint of agriculture. Um, so I think that from my standpoint. Um, we're incredibly proud of the, the work that we're doing there to the extent that it contributes to those kinds of goals, right? I mean, um, even the UN in terms of its 17 sustainable development goals says agriculture is the one thing that touches them all. And if we are doing things with Bayer there on row crops that can have that kind of impact, yes, they're a big company. Yes, they have some things in their past, but um, I think that... Uh, I mean, I don't want to be totally naive either. There, there could be some things there to, to deal with. But um, I think that from our standpoint, uh, we look upon that very, very positively. And I think they do too. Thank you, Dan. Uh, I know that we are officially finished at one o'clock. And I just want to let you know that you have about three other comments on here. Um, so I... I welcome, if some people are able to stay on for another minute or two, you're welcome to stay on. Um, and I just wanted to let you know that there are uh, a number of these comments, so I can share them with you in, um, as well. Okay, so I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna read it to you for a second. Uh, Roy, uh, Dan, and then we can finish up. It's Royd and Saw is, I, as I understand, a B Corp creates social accountability within a company. If Pairwise is not a B Corp, why and how do you create that accountability to the healthier world mentioned in your mission? Yeah, good question. So actually, I'm, I'm a bit naive here. It's a bit embarrassing, but I don't, I don't think we're a B Corp. But, but we actually have an effort underway right now on how are we going to... Um, create the structure and the accountability for, for SDGs, right? And so um, I don't have an answer for you right now, like this is our approach and how we're going to do it because we're just so young, um, but we're very conscious of it. We just, in fact, brought over a new person to be our chief financial officer. And she was a sustainability officer at her last company. 
And so she's got some experience here. It's one of the reasons why we, uh, one of the many reasons why we, we brought her on. So um, we're taking a look at it and it's important to us. Uh, so, but I just don't have an answer for this is how we're going to do it. So despite the fact that we may not be held accountable as a result of the sort of corporate law there, um, it is something that we, in, that we are absolutely intending to do and are starting to just starting to build a little structure around. Great. And I'll just ask you this last question, Dan. Thank you for staying on. A few folks asked if we could do go a little longer today. Um, the question is, any guidance from USDA on timelines for an RSR? And then we can finish up. Um, I'm sure Jennifer can correct me if I'm wrong, too. Uh, so I believe that the RSR process, I wanted to say, was it's either four or six months. I can't recall. Jennifer, do you, do you, is it six months? I think it's six, but I can't recall either anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks I, right, for asking. There, there's, there's lots of little different ones, right? So I believe that the RSR process is, is six months. The rub there for specialty crops is that 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 window, we only have one real sort of window available to us now, but the RSR window does not open up for specialty crops until October of this year. It does open next month for row crops. So even if we're ready to go right now and wanted to deliver something um, like our leafy greens in, in 2022, if we had to go down that RSR path, um, we couldn't start it for another roughly six months, which is unfortunate. So it's another challenge. It's, anyway. Great. Thank you so much, Dan. There was this last, uh, just for people to know from uh, Professor Jason Delborn, there's a critique of using the term social license in this context, mm. and there is um, a link to the publication. Oh, so I'll happily send that, that out as well. And I just want to thank you very much for coming and talking to us today. Uh, this was really a, a great colloquium, and we hope to be in uh, further communication with you. And I know that you, Pairwise, is also very uh, involved with NC State faculty and students. So thank you for coming today. Yeah, thank you very much. And again, thank you, Jennifer, for bringing it to my attention. I really appreciate it, everyone. Thank you, Dan. Great presentation. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.